Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Let me begin us with another word of prayer. Jesus, as we come before your word, we want to hear your voice. We know that you are the one we truly need more than anything. And so this morning, may you speak, for we, your servants, are listening. We pray this in your matchless and perfect name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I did not grow up listening to country music. Um, my roots are New York, New York City. And uh, in fact, I probably grew up somewhat prejudiced against country music. I'm sorry. I've since come to appreciate elements of it, especially more bluegrass Appalachian music. But a member in our church uh, pointed me to an old country song that has a lot of relevance to church community and kind of the theme we're looking at. And, uh, the, and it's got relevance because it communicates exactly the opposite of what we're trying to get at, and exactly the opposite of what I believe the Bible teaches. So the song is Me and Jesus by Tom Hall. And I'm not going to play it for you. It's very catchy, and I, I don't want to play it for you because I don't want it to get in your head, and then you're walking around singing bad theology. But I'm going to read you the chorus because you'll get the gist of what the song gets at. So Tom Hall sings, Me and Jesus got our own thing going. Me and Jesus got it all worked out. Me and Jesus got our own thing going. We don't need anybody to tell us what it's all about. Now, aside from the clear literary value, the command of the English language that that song communicates, it's interesting because he gets at what a lot of American Christians think, whether explicitly or at least like intuitively, and sometimes even subconsciously, right? I mean, Christianity is about my relationship with Jesus, and other Christians can be helpful. Sometimes they're unhelpful, but they're certainly not necessary. At the end of the day, it's about my relationship with God and what Jesus has to do with that. Now, the thing is, as catchy as that song is, the problem is that it's wrong. Uh, it's wrong just from an obvious perspective in that when he sings, we don't need anybody to tell us what it's all about, well, actually you do. Because no one's born knowing innately who Jesus is. Someone actually did have to tell you at some point who Jesus was, what he did. So just from that obvious perspective, it's, it, well, no, somebody actually does have to tell you what it's all about. But from a more important perspective, Jesus' own commands and his own teachings contradict that. 
Because Jesus tells us, no, you do need people to tell you what it's all about. And you do need the community. And, 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 and yes, you've been saved as an individual, but you've been saved into a church community. And so Jesus himself contradicts this. In fact, we are living stones, as we'll see in a text this morning, being built into a new building. We are a new people. And as we begin the new year, again, I thought it'd be helpful to set aside two weeks for this kind of mini-series just to reflect on our identity as, as not just Christians, individual, but as those who've been saved into a community and into a church. And what does that mean, and how can we prepare ourselves for 2024 to live into that reality more and more? Um, so, that's what we're, so that's what we're doing. Last week, again, we, we were, we've been in 1 Peter. Last week, we looked at 1 Peter 1, and we saw that how Peter begins first with reminding Christians what God has done for them in Jesus. You've been born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, you have an inheritance. Your future secure, your present secure, you're a new creation. This is what God has done for you through Jesus, and you receive it by faith. And then because of what Jesus has done for you, he then gives those four commands. And we looked at the third, which is love one another earnestly. And if you're going to map out 1 Peter 1 and 2, what, does, what Peter does is he begins first with what Jesus has done for you, and he gives those four commands, and then he finishes again with what Jesus has done for you, or more specifically, whom Jesus has made you to be. Once again, we're looking at what Jesus has done in those who have turned to him in faith, and we'll see that he's made us into a community. And this is our outline for us this morning, again, answering this question, who has Jesus made us to be? What has he done in our lives? Well, first, he's made us a building that is centered on Jesus, centered and built on Jesus. Second, he's made us a new people. Third, he's made us a new people with an outward focus. So again, if you haven't turned in your Bibles yet, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. Uh, and again, our first point is a building centered and built on Jesus. Let me go ahead and read verses 4 to 8 for us again. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, there's an image kind of undergirding this passage that Peter is using to teach us. And the image is, is two different buildings being built. You have one building, which is a building built by the world. And this is obviously a, a metaphor for how we make sense of our lives, where we find meaning, what we build our lives on. And one building being built by these builders, they're searching for a, a cornerstone, which would be like a foundation stone. And they're looking at different options, and they see Jesus, they consider him, but they find him inadequate for various reasons. And so they reject Jesus as a foundation, and they pick something else. That's one building being built. That's the building being built by the world. In contrast is the building that God is building. And in that one, the very cornerstone that was rejected by the world is the one that God chooses, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. So that's the image in the background here, these two different buildings. The building being built by the world, the building being built by God. 
And there's two truths that, that Peter is trying to drive through this. And the first one is that Jesus Christ was rejected by men. He was rejected by humanity, but he was chosen and precious to God. This is one of the big themes throughout 1 Peter. Again, Christ came into a world that he created to save it, but by and large, he was rejected. Uh, this, and this is, this is what these, uh, in verses 7 to 8, he quotes from Isaiah and from the Psalms. And that's what these quotations are getting at. Jesus was the stone that the builders considered, but they rejected. Likewise, he was the stone of stumbling, the one over whom, as people are trying to find a different cornerstone, they're stumbling and they're getting angry because they stubbed their toe on him and they're cursing. That's who Jesus is. He's been rejected by people. Now, we have to ask, why was Jesus rejected? And why is he rejected today still? And it's interesting, if you talk to a lot of people, they'd actually say, well, no, actually, I'm pretty cool with Jesus. It's Christians that I have a problem with. And we have to be open to that criticism and and see if there's some truth in there and and ways that we have not lived up to our faith. But I also want to be fair in that usually people who say that probably haven't really read the teachings of Jesus very closely. And that's why they think they don't have a problem with Jesus. Because when you really study Jesus... He becomes a problem very, very quickly. For some, he's too conservative. For others, he's too liberal. For some, he's not intellectually respectable enough. For others, he's too intellectual, too doctrinal. For some, he's too much of a pushover. For others, he's too violent. The reason why Jesus was rejected by the world and the reason he continues to be rejected is because Jesus refuses to be measured by our standards. That's the way we work as humans because our hearts are fallen. We walk around as, 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 as if we are God making de- decisions about what is right and wrong. And so we come to Jesus and say, well, here's our, our standards. Let's see if you measure up. But Jesus will not be measured by us, but rather as we come to him, he measures us by his standards, which don't always map over onto ours. And we can either receive his measurement because he's the king and his standards are these standards, or we reject them. But either way, Jesus will not be co-opted by our standards or by our categories or by how we try to make sense of things. He is the standard. The judge will not be judged. And so many people can't accept that. For some of us, this is the very aroma of salvation. God himself is our salvation. The judge gave up his life for the condemned. And that's our life and our forgiveness. For others, it is repulsive and they reject it and they want nothing to do with it. But this is Jesus. He was rejected by humanity, by many. And a corollary to this truth, which is another big theme in 1 Peter, is that if the one that we follow was rejected by men, we should expect at times to be rejected too. Uh, It's clear as you read through 1 Peter, the church is going through some kind of struggle. Peter calls it a fiery trial They're being maligned and slandered and and persecuted. And what Peter tells them is like, look, when that happens, because you're a Christian, just know that Jesus himself, that happened to him as well. And you're in good company. That's happening because you're just, you're following in the footsteps of your Lord. Jesus was also considered inadequate and overlooked. He was weighed in the balances by humanity, and he was found wanting. And so when you and your faith are found that way as well, just know that you're in good company. You're walking with your Lord. 
But again, this brings us back to our point. Jesus, who was rejected by humanity, was the one who is chosen and precious, who in God's building, the one that he's building, became and is the chief cornerstone. And we have to ask, okay, so, so he was rejected by humanity as a cornerstone, but made by God in his building as the cornerstone. What is a cornerstone? If you're an architect, you probably know. If you like to build stuff, you probably know. But for the rest of us, this is why we have Wikipedia. Wikipedia says a cornerstone or foundation stone or setting stone is the first stone set in the construction of a masonry foundation. All other stones will be set in reference to this stone, thus determining the position of the entire structure. What an incredible illustration of how Jesus and his gospel, his death and resurrection, plays into our thoughts, into our church, into our doctrine. He's the cornerstone. Everything finds its meaning and truth oriented around who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Jesus Christ and his gospel, it's not just the beginning of our faith, it's the whole thing. Sometimes as Christians, we can have this thought of, okay, uh, you know, I accept the gospel when I become a Christian. At some point, I realize my need of salvation, that I'm a sinner before God, but there's salvation in Christ. I trust in his forgiveness. I, you know, I'm saved from my sins. I'm forgiven. And now the basics are over, and I can move on to kind of the deeper stuff of the faith, the more robust and substantive stuff. I can get into the systematic theology and historical theology and biblical theology and all this stuff. But that, this illustration doesn't let us view the gospel in that kind of a way. The gospel is a cornerstone. And every stone that's laid after that has to find its orientation to Christ and what he has done for us. It's not just the first stone laid. Again, it's that which determines the position of the entire structure. Jesus Christ is our cornerstone. You've probably heard this before, but again, Jesus and his gospel are not the ABCs of our faith, but they're the A to Zs. Everything that, all of our faith, all of our thinking, all of our doctrine has to be done in orientation towards Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross. Okay, so, so that's, that's very theoretical. Practically, what does that actually look like? Well, it completely alters the way that we relate to God in the first place. Again, there's such a tendency in the human heart to think like, I, I come before God because I've lived a good life this week. And there's no sins that are weighing on my conscience, and therefore God will accept me. And yet when the cross is what orients all that we do, we recognize we only come before God because he's already forgiven us. And you're already beloved. Just like none of my kids need to become something else for me to love them, if your faith is in Christ, you're a child of the king. And he loves for you to come, not based on the life you've lived this week, but because the blood of Christ has cleansed you completely. It completely affects how we relate to God. We will never move past this great truth that we were dead in our sins and Jesus made us alive. We will never move past the need to grow in our trust and our faith and the promise of forgiveness for sinners like you and me. We'll never move past that. It'll always be the foundation for how we relate to God. So everything you build in your life, everything you think, everything you do, has to be done and built and founded on Jesus and on his work on the cross. Secondly, it governs our relationships. So it governs our relationship with God, the most primary relationship, but also governs our relationships with everyone else. And we talked about this last week. 
Paul's command was love one another. Now, in the world, the world loves people too. But why do people love each other just out in society? Well, probably because they're family, and there's like a built-in biological connection to those that you're related to. Maybe because you like them, you have things in common, similar interests and hobbies. Maybe because it's an advantage to you to like this person or love this person. But as Christians, why do we love each other? Well, it's because we worship the same Lord who shed his blood for each one of us, that we all have the exact same story. We were lost and dead in our sins, and Christ came after us, and he found us, and he made us his own. Therefore, if Jesus loved my brother or my sister in such a way, how can I not love them? It completely impacts how we relate to each other as well. Jesus is the cornerstone in everything we do, in our workplaces, in our families, in our studies, all that needs to be done in reference to what Christ did on the cross. Everything finds its position in view of that. Now, there's a warning here. There's only one cornerstone. From a building standpoint, none of you are architects, so you have no idea if I'm telling the truth. I think this is true. There are many important elements in a building. You have load-bearing walls. You have other things. You can quote me on that. There's only one cornerstone. There's only one focal point that will govern the structure of the church. I'm sorry, of the building. You can't have more than one. It's just not possible. And so likewise, in the church, we can have only one cornerstone, only one thing that we orient around. Now, here's the thing. Churches, if they reject Jesus as the cornerstone, it's rarely as obvious as, well, we don't believe in Jesus. We don't believe in the forgiveness of sins. It usually happens because we have competing cornerstones. And so you, so you still have Jesus and his gospel is supreme, but now there are other things that are taking that supreme importance. And that's when you can start having multiple cornerstones. And, and, and so on the theological left, oftentimes churches will make social causes into a cornerstone. On the right, it can be theological distinctives. And what makes this so tricky, guys, is that this is a matter of emphasis. Because every church should care about society. Every church should care about theological distinctives. But it's when we begin to elevate it as something at a supreme level, on the same level as the gospel. When that really begins to energize us in the way that only the gospel should. Well, now we have competing cornerstones, and this is where the danger is, is that there can only be one cornerstone. And eventually you're going to pick. It's either going to be Jesus or whatever else is competing. Dia Carson says uh, somewhere at some time that the way that Christians lose the gospel is this. He says the first generation believes the gospel. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's what energizes us, what fills our hearts, what makes us passionate the second generation assumes the gospel. That's where you start getting competing cornerstones. Because yeah, Jesus is supreme, but what I'm really excited about is this other thing, whatever it might be, good or bad. And then by the third generation, you lose the gospel. Because again, there can only be one cornerstone, whether that's Jesus, or critical race theory, or politics, or whatever it might be. And so Tom Hall got one thing right. Our Christian faith really is all about Christ. 
Uh, it's not about me and Jesus, but it is about Jesus. He is our cornerstone. So that's the first truth. You are a building being built with one cornerstone. That's Christ and his cross and his death for you and, his, and the grace that he has shown, the forgiveness of sins. That's our first point, a building centered and built on Jesus. Second point, second thing that Christ has made us is a new people. Now, as we look at verses 9 and 10, Peter adopts a new image. He's, he'd been talking about these buildings. Now he, he adopts a new image. You're not a building. You're now a new people group, a new country, ethnicity, not based on your skin color, or, but based on Christ having bought you as his own. And, and, and Peter actually uses four descriptions that were used of Israel in the Old Testament, and he now applies them to, the, to you, the church. So we're going to go through each one of those, but let me read verses 9 and 10 for us. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So again, the first description he says of you as a church, of this church 2,000 years ago, is you are a chosen race. There in verse 9, but you are a chosen race. Again, that was God's description of Israel in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, God speaks to Israel and says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Israel didn't kind of stumble across Yahweh, like, oh, happenstance, oh, here's Yahweh, let's worship him. Neither was it like, you know, Israel did a study of all the world using all the religions, and they put in all this time, and they weighed the pros and cons, and like, well, we think Yahweh's the best. God chose Israel when they were just a family. Abraham was a wandering nomad, and God chose him. Likewise, Israel was just an oppressed small people group in Egypt when God delivered them from slavery. And that's why, although in the Old Testament, yes, there's a lot of law and commandments, the relationship between Israel and God was always one based on grace because God chose them. Beloved, by believing the promise that God has made of forgiveness of sins through his son, of his love for you because of what Christ has done, by believing that, you become God's chosen people. God chose you. And you know him again, not because you sought him out by your efforts, not because you stumbled across him by happenstance, because the God of the universe chose you. Beloved, if you can receive this truth and believe it, really believe it, you will never need to be insecure again. Why? Because the living God of the universe hand-selected you before you were born he picked you. Who cares if a person rejects you? Who cares what walking dust might think of you? God chose you. The good shepherd sought you out, leaving the hundred to go after the one sheep that went astray. So that's the first thing. You're a chosen race. Second, you're a royal priesthood. Now, these actually, the second, third, and fourth description are, are all taken almost verbatim from, from a passage in Exodus. And the passage is Exodus 19. It's helpful just to read this. Again, to see how Peter is taking these descriptions of Israel and now applying them to Christians. 
But Exodus 19, 5 to 6, God is speaking to Israel and says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, or a royal priesthood, as it says in 1 Peter, and a holy nation. I mean, that's almost verbatim what Peter now applies to Israel. I'm sorry, what applies to the church, to Christians. And so let's break these down. So again, we have first a royal priesthood or a kingdom of priests. What does a priest do? Um, well, first, and this wasn't just true in Israel, this was across religions, priests offered sacrifices. And so they were a kingdom of priests to offer sacrifices. And here it's helpful to go back to 1 Peter 2.5, where Peter writes, You're going, you are a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we're not offering goats on an altar. That'd be kind of weird. Uh, we offer spiritual sacrifices. Okay, but what is that? Well, it doesn't say, but it's probably what Paul gets at in Romans 12.1 when he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We're a royal priesthood in that we offer sacrifices not of a goat or a bull, but of our lives, all of ourselves before God. Because God chose us and bought us with the blood of his son, everything I have is yours. And that's the worship that God finds acceptable. But secondly, more broadly, what does a priest do? A priest mediates between God and people. And so priests served in the temple and in the tabernacle, mediating between Yahweh and the people of Israel by offering sacrifices on behalf of the people of Israel. But in this passage in Exodus, it says, you will be a kingdom of priests. Not that you will just have priests, but all of you will be priests. Well, if they're all priests, who are they mediating for? Well, Israel was to mediate between Yahweh and the world. Again, the promise to Abraham was through you and your descendants, all the families of the world will be blessed. And the whole goal of Israel was that they would come to know Yahweh, and then they would share with the world all that they had learned about the greatness of their God. And the same is true for the church. You're a royal priesthood to mediate to the world the grace that you have received from God and his son Jesus. Whereas Peter says it later, to proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness to his marvelous light. We're here to mediate between God and the world to show the world the one that we've tasted and found him to be good. So that's, that's who we are secondly. You're a royal priesthood. And third, the third and fourth description are very similar. I'm going to, keep, I'm going to treat them together. But a, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And the idea is that because Christ died for us, we're set apart for him alone. Everything belongs to God. He owns everything as it is. Psalm 24, the earth, of, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all those who dwell therein. But when he chose you, that means that you are a special possession of God, uniquely possessed by God, treasured by God in a unique way so that everything you have, all your life is his, to be used for his pleasure and for his his joy, and his delight. Dear church, this is who you are. Your chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's, a, a treasured possession of God. 
It's that, that's not who I wish you were. That's not who you want to. That is who you are. If you have believed the promise of God of salvation through Jesus Christ. So keep your chin up. Straighten your back. Shake off your guilt. Whatever you might bring with you this morning. This is who you are. You're God's chosen, beloved children. He loves you more than you can fathom. Friends may reject you. Your boss might reject you. Your own family might reject you. And as painful as that would be, and I would never make light of that, through the eyes of faith, again, what is the opinion of talking dust when the living God has chosen you for himself? and has made you into his beloved, treasured possession. This is who you are. This is who Christ has made you to be by his work alone. Now let's note something obvious about this, that these four descriptions describing what Christians are, these are communal identities. Uh, Peter does not talk about the Christian as himself, but a Christian as part of this community. You can't be a building with just one stone, but you are living stones being built up into a building. You can't be a people with one person in it. You are a chosen race, a holy nation. This is the reality, whether we live it out or not. A Christian is part of God's chosen people. He's God's treasured possession. He's part of God's building that he is building. That's, that's just the reality. It might be helpful to think about becoming a Christian in this way. Becoming a Christian is not so much like hearing an inspirational speaker and deciding to change my life. Becoming a Christian is more like becoming a citizen of a new nation. Now, if you are a citizen of the United States or any nation, uh, you can live out that citizenship, right? You can, you can be involved in your communities. You can vote. You can be informed. You can live out that citizenship and, and, and all of its rights and privileges and obligations, or you can completely ignore it and go live in a cabin in the woods as a hermit and do as little as possible. It won't change the fact that you are a citizen of a country. That's the same thing with becoming a Christian. We don't become a citizen of a nation state, but we become a citizen of the kingdom of God, part of this chosen people. And we can live out of that to our benefit and our blessing and the blessing of each other, or we can ignore it. But it, it won't change the fact that this is who Christ has made you to be. And, I, and this is why we're trying to really focus on community and community groups right now, because there's a little bit of Tom Hall in all of us. There's a little bit of that, me and Jesus, we got our own thing going. Even as a pastor, it's so easy for me to begin to think of my faith in purely individualistic terms, of me and Jesus. And so we, we, it's just good to take time and, and think on the fact that, again, you are a chosen people, not a chosen person. You are a part of a building that God is building with Christ as the cornerstone. This is your identity, so how do we live it out? If that's who Christ has made us to be, not who we need to become, but who we really are, who will be for all eternity, how do we live it out? Well, we live our lives together. We embrace the family we've been called into. We open our homes to one another. And we allow ourselves to be open, to, to, you know, to be welcomed into other people's homes, because that can be intimidating as well. 
we set aside time to be together, like in community groups, which we'll be starting in February, by the way, to do life together because we know that this won't, this won't happen naturally or organically. We've got to schedule it. Now, with all this emphasis on community, though, I don't want this to be taken as some kind of call to become ingrown or just inward focused because we are a community. Christ has made us that. But he's made us a community that has an outward focus. And this is our, our third point. So our first point, again, we are a building centered and built on Jesus. Second, we are a new people, or sorry, a new community. And then third, a community with an outward focus. Let me read verse 9 for us again. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's who you are purpose statement that, in order that, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We were saved so that we can declare to a watching world, this is who our God is. See what he has done in our lives. See what he has done in my life. Remember, we're a royal priesthood. We mediate between God and the world. Now, we can declare God's excellencies in two different ways, and both of them are important. First, we declare God's excellencies by being a holy nation, set, set apart for God. In other words, we declare God's excellencies by being different from the world. Um, people can be pretty cynical, especially about anything that, like an institution or anything in general, people in general, being pretty cynical. And the reason why we can be cynical is because we know how the world operates, if you have a job, that is an at-will basis job, which means that as long as you are profitable for your company, they will pay you. But the moment you stop being profitable, they may fire you at will. This is not a family, although businesses will say we're like a family. It's not true. It's an at-will contract. It's written in their contracts, and I should probably have cleared this with Sean. I hope what I'm saying is true. That's how the world operates. You scratch my back, I scratch your back. As long as you're helpful to me, I'll be helpful to you. Likewise, in the world, the rich and the powerful all too often use their wealth and their influence to benefit themselves, to buy a second home, to go on expensive trips, to you know, give their kids a better advantage. In the world, leaders all too often use their position and power to increase their own prestige, to advance their own interests. In the world, saying the wrong thing or thinking the wrong thing can cost you your employment, it can cost you your reputation, it can cost you friends. In the world, people can be like trash, that when we're done with them, we can discard them and just move on. And so people are cynical, because that's how the world operates. But one of the ways we declare the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness is by being different, by being the church that Christ has called us to be. And so in the church, how is it? Well, in the church, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. In the church, greatness is caring for orphans and widows in their distress. In the church, we forgive one another, not when it's convenient, not just a couple times, but 77 times, seven times. In the church, we love one another earnestly, perseveringly, even when it's hard. And as Mark, or sorry, as Jesus said so beautifully in Mark 10, 42 to 45, in comparing the world versus the church, 
He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the mindset that should mark the church. That kind of community that, that, that's characterized by those characteristics is rare. And most people, especially outside the church, have never seen that. But if we can live into that, that kind of Christ-centered, spirit-filled community, that'll be a very compelling witness to the excellencies of him who calls us out of darkness. So first, we declare God's excellencies by simply being different than the world. We're not going to play by the world's rules. We're going to play by the rules set down by our Savior, Jesus Christ, who bought us with his blood. But secondly, we declare God's excellencies by actually using our words and sharing the gospel. You know, we as a church will hopefully do many things and many things well, but there will always be one thing that we must do, and that is to declare the good news of the Son of God who came to earth to die for sinners and to do that in our context here in Germantown, in a neighborhood that desperately needs to hear the gospel. We exist to do that, to tell Germantown and our neighbors and our coworkers that there's a God, and he's more beautiful than you can imagine. And his goodness and holiness would make you tremble. And yet his compassion and his grace are deeper than the ocean, and our sins were as black as tar, but Jesus has cleansed us, and he has called us out of that darkness. And he called you too. Will you come to him? And we don't do this alone, as lone rangers, as lone evangelists, but we do this as a community, praying for one another, encouraging one another, exhorting one another when we need to, going on neighborhood walks together and throwing block parties together and trunk or treats together to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. So beloved, you are God's chosen people, his royal priesthood, a holy nation, his treasured possession. Let's live that out together in 2024. But second, God has saved you so that you might declare his excellencies. Again, in your neighborhoods, in your classes, and in this neighborhood. And again, let's do that together as God's chosen people. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are one who's called us to yourself, made us your own, that we are beloved of God, a chosen people, a royal priesthood. May we know that identity that you've made us. May we live out that identity as well as we can. And may all parts of our lives, our words and our deeds, may they proclaim your excellencies, your greatness, your holiness, your power and your majesty. And may we do that here in Germantown for the glory of your kingdom. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.